there. If you would turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. As you're turning there, I have a slide up that kind of reminds us where we are as far as what section of the book of Isaiah we're in. We're in the section that's called by many the prophecies of woes. And the reason is, is every time as you're reading through the chapter, you come across the word woe to those, and then it describes which group of people that there's a woe toward. And we covered chapter 28 and 29 and the woes in those chapters. Right now we're in 30 and 31. And if all goes well, by the end of class today, we'll be in chapter 32. And so we're in this section of 28 to 33 where it's talking about the prophecies of the woes. And this is what we covered under the first set in the foolish leaders and false counsel. Woe to the crown of pride, which was Ephraim, the drunkards of Ephraim. Woe to Ariel. And there were some specific things mentioned there. And then woe to those that have atheistic attitudes. And we covered what that looks like. And unfortunately, while we, none of us would proclaim to be an atheist, sometimes we do what's called practical atheism. We live our life as though God doesn't exist. These people were proclaiming that, but sometimes it even creeps into our lives that way. And so then we went from that to the fact that part of these atheistic attitudes were showing in the fact they thought they should trust Egypt. They should make this alliance with Egypt. And we've been looking at the two chapters, 30 and 31, where Isaiah no longer is hinting at it. He's bluntly stating, you're planning to trust Egypt. And so rather than focusing all the details on that, I ask us to look at three questions. The first one was, what does the passage tell us about the Jews? The second one was, what's the problem with trusting Egypt? And the third one, which we haven't covered yet, is what's God's character in response to all of this? Because God responds in alignment with his character. And so we're on that last question. And by way of review, and this was kind of tough, when we went through and we covered the question about what the passage tells us about the Jews. I had about three or four slides full. You all came up with some ones that you know, were intermixed that I didn't put on my slides. But I wanted to kind of hit the top ones. And so I'm looking at a dozen or more things that it told us about the Jews. I'm like, well, how do you boil that down to four? So here's the three or four I had. First of all, the Jews weren't seeking God's counsel and they weren't seeking perfection or protection from God. And isn't that true of us today? Many times as an afterthought, oh, maybe I should pray about this instead of starting, Lord, what should I do concerning this? Second one was they were adding more sin to their existing sins and we mentioned the fact that you know one of the things we see is as a child and a young person doesn't have a ton of sin 
as they start making bad decisions and they sin and then they add more sin, when they get to our age, some people look pretty rough because of all the sin that they're carrying. Um, And isn't it good that we have a Savior that forgives us of our sin so we don't have to carry that burden? But the Jews were adding sin to sin. And then it mentioned the fact that they despise God's word even to the point that they told the prophet, don't bring him into our life. We don't want God in our life. Um, That's a sad state of affairs. Um, The best thing that can happen to any of us is for God to actively be in our life. And the reason is when we consider his character, his mercy is what reaches out and draws us to himself and helps us to understand why we need to repent from our sin and turn to him. And then Judah, because of all the things that they weren't doing right, God said, you get new teachers. Um, It'd be like when Jesus walked on the earth, the scribes and Pharisees didn't accept what he said, And he could very easily look at the Jewish leaders of his day and say to them, okay, you don't want to listen to me? We're going to give you some new teachers. Who are the new teachers here? Adversity and affliction. And if you look, uh, since the time of Jesus, um, and really even the time of Isaiah, the Jews don't seem to listen to too many teachers, but adversity and affliction get their attention. I say all of that because I think some of the smartest people learn from other people's mistakes instead of having to make them themselves. I can't say that I fall in that category all the time, but occasionally I happen to learn from someone else's mistakes. We can learn from the Jews' mistakes here. These kinds of things, just because we know Jesus is our Savior, doesn't give us diplomatic immunity where we can't do the same thing. So that's why we covered that so in detail. And so I hope that helps you by way of review. And then the other review was What was the problem with trusting Egypt? Well, first of all, it was shameful. It was shameful that a people that said they trusted in Jehovah, the God that had provided for them, and Terry Ann brought up the fact that, look at their history. She brought up a history that was in the future, but I told her, don't worry, I did the same problem myself. But if you look back at Moses and them coming out of the land of Egypt, That history should have told them they had a powerful God, but they forgot it. And so it was shameful, and it was confused thinking. If you consider where they came from, which was Egypt, how did the Egyptians Egyptians treat them? Awful. They were slaves. And so it's like, you know, you hear them, if you were in that time when Isaiah was there and And you hear them talking about, well, let's go back to Egypt. Get them to protect us from the Assyrians. 
you'd kind of be saying to yourself, now isn't Egypt where we were slaves? What are you thinking? Their thinking was all confused. It doesn't make sense. So it was shameful. It was confused. And then the last bullet on that was the fact that Egypt doesn't hold a candle to God's power. God had already shown that he was more powerful than all the gods of Egypt and the Egyptians. And here they're going thinking that that's that's where they need to go to protect themselves from the Assyrians. So that's a brief review concerning we took all of last last week to cover most of that. Brenda? Well, they obviously forgot. I know it was multiple generations. She's asking me the hard questions, which are history questions, and I'm not good at the history. Um, I know they were, because the Bible tells us they were 400 years in Egypt before Moses brought them out. Joseph took them in, and then Moses took them out. But I would have to go find out the answer to that. That's a good question for for bringing up next week. Okay, I see a couple of hands that might help me. I'll start with Bobby and then Bill. Can you repeat what she asked? Yes, what Brenda asked was, how many years was it from the time Moses took them out of Egypt to the time of Isaiah? And I know Isaiah is around the 800 B.C. time period. I just don't know when Moses brought them out of Egypt. Thank you for reminding me to repeat that. Bill, did you... I was just thinking that their faith didn't last them even the trip completely out of Egypt to the <laughs> Holy Land. They was already to go back before that. Bill brings up another good point. When Moses brought them out of Egypt, their faith didn't even last very long because they ended up wandering 40 years in the wilderness before they went into the promised land. And uh, so, Brenda, your answer is at least 40 years plus some. <laughs> but we'll, we'll find that out. That's a good question. If you look at your Bibles in chapter 30, we're going to read just a few verses to help us with this next question. These verses are, are very rich with information about God's character and response. But there's others in here that we'll look at also. And so it says in verse 18 of chapter 30, in the book of Isaiah, it says, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry, and when he, when he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And then verse 20, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity, the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes 
shall see thy teachers. And so we've covered all of this. We've got to the question of God's character. Um, I don't know if any of you at home read through the chapter with that question in mind, but there's other verses, and just to kind of help us along a little bit, if you go back to verse 13 and 14, a little bit further back, what do you see in these verses that tell us something about God's character and his response? I'm going to help us with finding at least some verses since we didn't read the whole passage. Paul? For one thing, he lets them reap what they have sown. Okay. In these verses, I think Paul has hit the nail on the head with the fact that we reap what we sow. In this case, Israel's going to reap what they've sown. It says here, therefore this iniquity shall be unto you as a breach ready to fall. The idea is, is God's judgment is about ready to come upon them. Why? Because of their iniquity. So they're going to reap judgment because of their iniquity. Okay, and so it's about to fall upon them. What about verse 15? You see anything in there that tells us about God and his response? Okay, so it shows God's mercy in that repentance is going to bring God's action upon them. So we've mentioned the fact that their iniquity is going to bring about judgment. And then as God sees their response, as they respond correctly to him, as they start to trust God for strength and return home and rest, he's going to save them. And so even though some of their thinking is shameful and it's confused, as they start to realize and return back to God and repent, he's willing to save them. We read verses 18 and 19. There's a number of things in there. What do you see in those verses that we read that tell us about God? Okay. I'm going to hold that thought. There's a few things before the, the point that Brenda brought up, and that is the fact he is a God of judgment. His righteousness is going to require that he judge something. He's long-suffering. What else does it tell us, Nancy? Well, it looks to me like he's going to wait for them to come around and because he intends to be gracious to them. And okay. So if you look at what Nancy just brought out, he's patiently waiting. And he's not just sitting there waiting. I think he's anxiously waiting to show grace and mercy. Mentions that God is exalted by showing mercy. And so when you think about God's character of mercy and grace, he believes, and I think we should believe and understand, 
that when God shows mercy and grace, that just shows us how loving and kind a God we serve is, the God that we love, the God that saved us is. He's wanting to show mercy. And and some of us might remember at least parts of it, but Pastor Aaron talked about the fact that God desires to show mercy. He has a sermon on that probably about a month or so ago. And so God wants to show mercy. He wants to extend grace, but he waits. He waits till we take some initiative in the process. He's not going to force that on us. He's waiting for us to say we want it. And so the Jews are looking at everywhere else except for God. And so he's waiting, but he wants to show mercy and grace. And then Brenda brought up the fact that he's righteous. If you look at the last part of what we talked about um, or what we read in verse 18 the very last phrase or two it says for the Lord is a God of judgment blessed are all they that wait for him and so his judgment is because he's righteous that's why there's judgment and if there wasn't judgment then we would say well What kind of God is this that doesn't have a sense of moral rightness? But he has both the moral rightness and he also has the mercy and the grace. What else? Look at verse 20. What do you see in verse 20? Okay, I think it goes a little stronger than what Brenda's saying. She's right on. He allows things to happen. But he, in this particular case, it says he gives them the teachers of adversity and affliction. We need to recognize that God is sovereign. If we don't respond correctly, just like the Jews didn't, then he gives us what he knows is best for us to teach us. Unfortunately, we aren't always going to like the teachers that he gives us. But he's the one giving those teachers because he knows they won't listen to anything else. Um, It begs the question for you and I today, are we listening to God? Are we trusting his word, obeying his word? Or does he have to give us a harder teacher, some affliction or adversity? Wayne? If we back up to 14, and like again, I said I'm reading from the New American Standard. Mm-hmm. It says, who collapse, whose collapse is like the smashing of the potter's jar? He's reminding them that he's the potter, we're just the clay. Yep. And, you know, until we realize that, we're going to keep kicking against the goats, Paul says. Yeah. Human nature is that we 
think the world revolves around us. But the truth of the matter is, the world revolves around the God that made us. And the sooner we recognize him as our creator, the better off we're going to be. Bob has something too. Bob mentions the fact, and I've seen it many times, but I've intentionally not brought it out in a way that's political because it's both parties. It's all our society. It's not one or the other. But the truth is, is throughout the book of Isaiah, you find exactly what Bob is talking about. It says, and they forsook the Lord and turned to idols. If you look at our country today, we're living an example of the same thing. Our heritage, to a large degree, was based on Judeo-Christian values. And many of our pilgrims and founding fathers were Christians. And there's some that were just good people, moral people, but there were a number that were really Christians. And part of what makes our democracy and capitalism work is that it's restrained and constrained by Christian values. Well, when you forsake God and you turn from those, we're seeing what's happening in our own nation today. And I agree fully with Bob. We need a revival. It's not going to be politicians. It's not going to be... Um, this person or that person or a military might that saves America, it's going to be that God gives a revival. And so as we look at his character, he's willing to show mercy and grace just like he was to them. We don't have the promises the Jews had, but God's character is the same, which means that if we'll wait on him and we'll pray, will turn from our evil, we can expect he'll respond in mercy and grace. And so, uh, yes, I see a lot of similarities. Isaiah was under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving a message directly to them. But if you look at the principles and the basic human nature and God's nature, we have the same situation today in our country. What else, though, do we see about God's character here? We've covered the fact that he gave affliction and adversity. I'm trying to get us through without reading every verse. If you'll jump down to 23 through 26, what do you see there? Yes, ma'am. Acts of kindness. God gives the rain for our benefits that seems to come up for so forth. Kindness. It's kindness, and, and this is a little bit of a dangerous one because there's a lot of people that teach and preach a prosperity doctrine. I want us to realize that our spiritual condition 
has a direct bearing on our physical condition. Um, it's not that we can name it and claim it. It's not that um, God promises prosperity. It's that as we honor him with trusting and obeying him, then he shows kindness like Bobby mentioned of providing rain, of providing for us. Um, honestly, I think one of the things that has been as much of a curse as a blessing to our country is as our country was blessed with prosperity, it has turned from God. But the prosperity, I believe, came by honoring God in the lives of our forefathers. And so God gives adversity and affliction. He also looks for Judah to obey and turn to him. And then he says he'll give the rain and show kindness. And this also is going to be specifically when Messiah comes. When, you know, when Isaiah is talking, he's talking about some of their immediate problems. But at times, the Holy Spirit gives him glimpses of what Messiah is going to be like in the future. And uh, the way God looks at things is a little different than us. We like chronologically. God just sees and gives a picture of Messiah. When he comes, he's going to restore the earth to its pristine state. Except there will be sinful people running around. But there will also be people in glorified bodies um, that will be part of the government that Messiah has. And when Messiah comes, the land is going to produce more than enough food for all the people that are living throughout the millennium. But in this, he's, he's spot, speaking specifically to his time period. What about 27 through 33? You see anything in there about God? It's going to be a terrible time for the enemies of the Jews, definitely. Um, if you remember the promise made to Abraham, those that bless Abraham, God will bless. Those that curse him, God will curse. Well, this is that in living color. Um, I did have one section in there, verse 33. Anyone know what Tophet is? For Tophet is ordained of old. That word kind of threw me into a, a little bit of a tailspin. I was like, what is Tophet? You know, it's not a word we use today. Um, it has to do with a place of torment. Uh, it has to do with really, I believe, from what I could glean from commentaries and reading, it has to do with a, a place of judgment, which we would call hell. But that's... Here he talks about it's a place that's made deep and large and has fire and much wood and brimstone doth kindle it. It's basically the place where people, when they die, are going to be 
you know, condemned, they're going to be there. Wayne? Uh, footnote in my Bible says it later became known as Gehenna. Gehenna, thank you. That was the word I was looking for and didn't have written down. So, so Wayne helped me out on that. Thank you, sir. Gehenna is the other word that people use instead of Tophet there. And so when Messiah comes, the enemies of Israel are going to be destroyed. And we know that that part is a future prophecy because it hasn't been fulfilled yet. So that brings us to chapter 31. In chapter 31, we have some things about God that we can learn about his character and response. If you go to verse 3, what do you see there? Okay, so the first thing that God highlights is the fact that you're trusting in man instead of trusting in God. Man is not a God, and so he doesn't have the strength. He can't dictate how things are going to be. What happens when God's judgment comes, though? Okay. Which men perish? Just the enemy? Pari? Okay, both do. And so keep in mind, let's back up and think about the context again. Isaiah saying, don't go down to Egypt. Don't trust Egypt. Egyptians are just men. They aren't gods. And you're going to go down and you're going to disobey. And when God's judgment comes, both the helper and the helpee, for lack of a better way of putting it, both are going to come under God's judgment. And so it's not going to profit you. You're both going to fall down. And so what we learn there is disobedience to God brings his judgment on both you and others around you. And so when God judges both of them, are going to be affected by that judgment. About verses 4 and 5, what do you see about God and his response in there? brings up the fact uh, God's coming down it's, it's indicating that God is going to move from where he normally is to deal with this um, I don't know about you but when she just said that it got, got me laughing because I had a flashback to when I was a little boy 
my brother and I would be in the bedroom and if we were cutting up instead of going to sleep like we were supposed to, you know, dad would have a, a statement that went something like this, you boys settle down, you're going to regret it if I have to come in there. <laughs> Anyone else have that experience? Yeah. Oh yeah, we got a couple here that, that could relate to that. And the idea was, is he didn't want to have to get up from his chair, but if he did, there was going to be a day of ju- or a night of judgment, <laughs> you know, in that bedroom. And so God's saying the same thing, but notice here what God's going to do when He comes down, and, and Beth's right on with the idea that God's going to be moved to act. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things mentioned here. God's going to fight, he's going to defend, he's going to deliver, and he's going to preserve or protect Israel. And so they have a promise from God, and God's not going to forget his promise to their forefathers because of their bad behavior, but he's going to judge them But in the end, when they turn back to him, he's going to make sure they're protected. He's going to fight against them. Um, I think boys are more prone to this than than girls, but they'll be on the playground, and my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad can beat you up or whatever. Well, um, I see a couple people nodding their head and smiling. You know, they either did that or had it done to them or heard it done. Can you imagine the ideas that went through the cultures of that time? Their way of thinking was if they won in battle and defeated you, then their God gave them the victory and their God was more powerful than you. And so here God is saying to Israel, when it's all said and done, I want to deliver you. I'm going to fight for you. And if we were thinking the way boys do, we'd look at another nation and we'd say to them, you might be bigger than me, you might have better weapons or bigger horses or all these things, but that doesn't hold a candle to how powerful my God is. And he's going to set things right and he's going to protect me. They have that promise here in God's word. Wayne? And we can actually look further back in Scripture, and it tells us that the nations that the Israelites came up against were in fear because of God. Absolutely. Wayne's right on with that. As they came into the promised land, as Joshua brought them in, God put a fear on the hearts of all the other nations where they weren't going to mess with them because they knew that Israel's God was the one fighting for them. And here they've drifted so far from that. And then the last thing that we see here, verses 8 and 9, is God's going to destroy the enemies of Israel, and there's no escape. God is sovereign. He waits on us. But when he does move to fight and protect, to judge, there's no escaping 
we can't run far enough, fast enough, and there's no place to hide because when God decides it's time, no one can deliver us from his hand. No one can deliver the enemies of Israel from his hand. And the same is true for us. Um, if God chooses to bring judgment to America, now I pray for revival. I don't rejoice in that idea. Um, frankly, it, it scares me because it'll be judgment on both the just and the unjust. It'll be on us as a whole country. But if he chooses to do that, we can't hide. We can't run far enough or fast enough because his judgment, no one can escape from that. And so Israel gives us in these verses kind of a good picture of what God is like. He glor he's glorying in showing mercy and grace, but he's waiting for a response before he shows it. And so we have to be willing to turn from our sin for him to show that mercy and grace. Bill? Uh, is this the passage about where Isaiah is uh, forecasting what's going to happen when the Syrian army surrounds the Jerusalem? I think parts of this are foreshadowing what God's going to do with Assyria when they come, when Hezekiah is king in a few chapters ahead. <laughs> now, how many years ahead? I, I have a little bit of trouble getting that exactly right, but I think it's both near-term prophecies, but also there's kind of a, a foreshadowing in that of what will happen when Messiah comes at the second coming. Uh, but Predominantly, I read this as in his time period, um, but yet it gives us hints of what it will be like at the second coming also. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you for asking that. Okay, that gets us to chapter 32. And chapter 32, in our prophecies of woes, this is where he's going to highlight the true solution. The true solution is Messiah, the righteous king. And in there we're going to find a woe to the spoiler or destroyer. So let's read the first eight verses because that's kind of his introduction. And sometimes I find Isaiah makes a, almost like an abrupt change in what he's talking about. But as I dig deeper, I find that I think I'm slowly figuring out some of his train of thought. So here he says, in chapter 32, verses 1, starting there and reading to verse 8, it says, Behold, the king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. A man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammers shall be ready to speak plainly. 
The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry. He will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl are evil. He deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. For the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. I don't know about you, but as I read that, I'm like, huh? Yeah, the liberal. So we got liberals in here. Didn't see conservatives in here. But I did find another word called churl in there. Anyone know what churl means? Miser. Pardon me? Miser. Miser. Fool. No American Standard translates fool. Okay. There's... The ESV translates um, vile person as fool, but churl they translate different. Anyone know what a dictionary says the definition is for churl? If a person is churlish, what are they? Obtuse. (laughs) Let's find another word that people have a hard time defining. Put that out there as the definition. (laughs) I've had dictionaries where I've read one, and I'm like, I'm even more confused now reading the definition. This is not a word that we typically use in our vocabulary. Um, I've heard it used once in my career at work. It was to do to kind of reprimand a coworker that I had, and someone said to him, "Don't be churlish." And he went and looked it up, and that was my first encounter. And then I found that the King James Bible has it in there. So I'm going to read to you the definition, or at least the simplified definition that I got as I I read the. Uh, Dictionary. It's a rude and mean-spirited person. Okay? But that then caused me to say, well, you know, maybe this was a common word back when they translated the King James. Um, Every so often, I do find that the King James English is not quite as familiar to me as... A different translation. So I'm going to read to you the ESV. And by the way, I prefer the King James most of the time. But when I come across a passage like this, I think I understand the ESV. And by the way, the ESV, just like the King James, may have its problems, but it's a word-for-word translation. And Pastor Caleb, I thought, did a really good sermon on Bible translations, because there's some that are trying to translate the thought, and that's not really a translation. I call it a transliteration, where they're saying, okay, this phrase might be better concerned, or a paraphrase type of Bible. ESV is a translation. They took word for word, 
and some people like it, some people don't, but on this, I think as you listen to it being read, it'll make it a little more sense about what he's talking about here. It says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like a shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel, and that's what they use for churl, which I thought was kind of a good choice, said to be honorable. For the fools speak folly, his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to rule the, ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands." makes a whole lot more sense to me than the liberal, seeing as how there's not conservative in there. And also, since I don't routinely remember the definition of churl, uh, the scoundrel, that I know. When you call someone a scoundrel, you're basically saying they're a cheat. So, that brings us to a couple of groups of people that we have here. And the first group is the righteous rulers. This is the king, or a king. And so I don't think it's talking specifically about Messiah here. I think it's talking about all righteous rulers, the princes as well as the king. They're going to rule with righteousness and judgment. So what do they do? When you look at this passage, looking at the first few verses there, Verses 2 through 4. What do righteous rulers do? They give protection. They protect from the wind and storms of life. In Florida, I think we can appreciate some of that because we have hurricanes routinely come through. And when those hurricanes come through, I believe there are some good civil rulers throughout our state and they issue warnings and I think sometimes the media hypes it up a little too much uh, but if you look at the most recent hurricane I think most of us remember seeing pictures or hearing something on the news about Sanibel Island and how devastated it was and they couldn't even get to the island because the road was, you know, totally pretty, pretty badly washed away. And I looked at those first pictures and my first thought when I saw them was, it was going to take months, probably even years, to get Sanibel Island reconnected and everything 
back in, in play. Two to three weeks after that, the news said Sanibel Island was now connected. It wasn't a permanent fix, but they had it connected back to the mainland so that people could get back to their homes and deal with whatever damage was there. To me, that was an example of trying to protect and trying to help after literal storm. Um, and somewhere I read a thing where they contrast that to building some bathroom in California that was going to take two years and a couple million dollars. And I'm thinking, I'm glad I live in Florida. <laughs> Our our civil leader, leaders may not be, probably aren't perfect. You can probably find faults with them. But one thing I will say is they know how to deal with storms. Uh, and so the various ones throughout Florida did things to make sure that as best as possible they protected the people. And so a righteous ruler, part of their focus is serving the people. What else do you see about the righteous ruler? <coughs> That's all they do, huh? They just protect the people and then they're done. They can wash their hands and say, okay, done my job for the year. I'll be back next year. Okay, there is some aspects of what the people do in response to the righteous ruler, but there's something else that they do for the people. Nancy? I'm guessing here that he is um, keeping them informed and telling them what they need to know. Well, I think Wayne's kind of hinted about that in verses four, uh, 3 and 4, but what about verse 2? That's the one that I'm, I'm hoping to get. Pardon me? Are princes, you know, you know, have princes that are righteous and just. Yeah, and what do they do? Rule the people. Okay, they protect the people. We already it runs downhill. mentioned. It runs downhill. Huh? The storm, the, the water runs downhill. Okay, well, that's that's what I think many people think ruling the people means is that you're controlling and, and you're you know, over those people and that the authority runs downhill but the Bible says the righteous ruler does something different okay he provides for him the phrase that I used and then we're going to have to stop and we'll pick it up next week is he refreshes the people like water in a desert. Um, you ever been real, real thirsty and there's no water around? There's no drinks at all around? And your mouth starts going, you know, where's some water? Well, that's the feeling that people get when there's a righteous ruler. When they're thirsty, he's going to help. After the hurricanes... One of the things that routinely happens in Florida is in case you don't have clean water, 
They have bottled water at places where you can get them. And then the opposite is where you're out. Most of us in Florida, whether it's working in the yard or doing some other activity, and it's hot out there, and we're sweating, and we're wiping our brow, and our, our hat you know, is all there. And it's like, man, I wish a cloud would come over and give me shade. That's the analogy that Isaiah is bringing here. He says, righteous rulers are going to protect. And really, it's a lesson in what is our government supposed to be doing. It's mainly supposed to be protecting its citizens. And when there is issues, it does a certain degree of providing. But I honestly believe the government has stepped well beyond that. And they've taken over what churches used to do and what churches are supposed to do, and that is love and care for people. But a righteous ruler is like a refreshing drink of water and shade when you need it most. There's one other thing about the righteous people we'll cover next week. See if you can find it in those verses. And then there's the other two people that we're going to talk about, which we defined the fool and the scoundrel. So kind of read those and kind of look because we're asked the same question, what do they do? And we'll see if we can't kind of compare and contrast the two. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you for your attention. Heavenly Father, we again give thanks for your word. We're thankful that you have provided in many times authorities that are doing what's right many that may trust in you and father we're seeing some in our day where they reflect our culture where they've forsaken you and and father help us to see the contrast and know who we should praise and why but most of all father help us to look to you because there is no salvation outside of looking to jesus and Father, we pray that we would exalt him highly. Pray for Pastor Caleb as he preaches. May we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus through the, the message. Bless the time that we spend together in Jesus' name. Amen.